This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is away this week. On today's show, Harvey Sachs discusses his new book, Tuscanini, Musician of Conscience. Then PW Director of Digital Operations Craig Teicher talks about what books of poetry we can look forward to this fall. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. So in the fiction, we don't have very many debuts. We do have Dean Kuntz, The Silent Corner, uh, debuting at number two. And then we have a new one, Janet Ivanovich's new novel, Dangerous Minds. And further down the ways, Don Winslow uh, coming out with The Force. And Mary Alice Monroe at number 13 with uh, Beach House for Rent. Quite a few of these books set in the summer with uh, beautiful scenes or at least uh, scenes of uh, folks standing at the beach, usually in blue. It's a little color thrown in. But in the nonfiction, we only have one debut on the top 25. And it's not really a debut. It's one that was uh, that came out in November, but is just gaining popularity in November of 2016. I'm sorry, uh, December of 2016. And that's Travis Stork's The Lose Your Belly Diet. I assume this is probably getting a little bump because this is getting, uh, well, we are now in beach weather. And then another one that was on our list back in May and has come back on again is The Bright Hour, A Memoir of Living and Dying by Nina Riggs. Riggs was living in Greensboro, North Carolina. She was diagnosed with uh, incurable breast cancer, and she died just a few months before the book was uh, published. And uh, it it really got a lot of attention, and I imagine uh, people are writing about it now and and giving it uh, a little bump as well. And going along with the uh, Lose Your Belly diet that we talked about, this is actually on the trade paperback list, is Air Fry Everything by Meredith Lawrence. And... uh, that's basically what we have on the uh, on our list. Again, not much, but we'll see how it looks uh, next week. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Harvey Sachs tells us about the great composer Tuscanini. We'll be right back. I'm Matthew DeBoard, author of Return to Glory, the story of Ford's revival and victory in the toughest race in the world. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Rose Fox is away this week. Today, we've got Harvey Sachs on the line. His new book is Toscanini, Musician of Conscience. Hey, Harvey, so glad you could join us. Very happy to be with you. So just to start off with, uh, let's talk a little bit about the subtitle of the book, uh, Toscanini as a Musician of Conscience. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, I chose that subtitle because uh, Toscanini was very much a musician of conscience, both with respect to music itself and also with respect to uh, life in general. 
uh, he uh, he was extraordinarily conscientious in his approach to his art, to his work as a conductor of opera and symphonic music. But he also, uh, at various times in his long life, uh, had to confront political situations that caused him to act according to his conscience. And um, he was very well known in the 1930s and 40s for his opposition to fascism and Nazism. And um, of course, by then he was one of the world's most famous performing musicians. And uh, that fact uh, contributed to the to the knowledge uh, outside the world of music as well as inside it uh, of his his stand, his very principled stand. Since we're talking about politics right now, and and uh, he actually, if I'm not mistaken, he ran for a fascist uh, parliamentary candidate in 1919. So uh, before he was anti-fascist, he was uh, kind of pro-fascist. Uh, tell us a little bit what was going on in Italy and uh, how this came about. Well, uh, yes. Uh, Toscanini, uh, at the end of the First World War, you know, Italy was in a state of total political and economic chaos. And um, in 1919, uh, his son, who had been a soldier during the First World War, I should say, I should point out, by the way, in 1919, Toscanini was already 52 years old. His son uh, had fought in the First World War. And um, both of them were rather hot-headed uh, <laughs> lefties, we would say today. Also, Toscanini's father had uh, been a radical who had fought in uh, had fought with Garibaldi in Garibaldi's troops during the Italian reunification movement in the mid 19th century. So uh, he came by his point of view natu naturally. Mm. Um, so 1919, there was this uh, ex-socialist journalist named Benito Mussolini who um, had been thrown out of the Socialist Party because he had been a, a passive, uh, he had been an interventionist during the First World War, whereas the Socialist Party had been officially pacifist. Uh, on the other hand, his political ideas, in 1919 were far to the left of the Socialist Party. They were, I would say, almost Bolshevik-like. I mean, we're talking about a time right after or during the ongoing Russian Revolution. Uh, he uh, advocated abolition of the banks, the stock exchange, uh, um, taking away uh, property from the church, abolishing the monarchy, and the aristocracy, because Italy at that time was a monarchy. Um, he believed in uh, votes for women, universal suffrage, and so on and so forth. And Toscanini agreed with all of those points. And uh, he actually, for the first and last time in his life, attended some political meetings. And uh, the writer, Marinetti, a futurist writer, uh, and Mussolini himself persuaded Toscanini to accept uh, candidacy in this new little party that they were uh, 
that they were founding that was called Fasci di Combattimento, which means combat groups. It was an extreme left party at the time. And they knew that they were not going to, uh, that at most Mussolini would be elected to parliament. Nobody else would be because it was a last minute uh, setup. And so Toscanini agreed to run. And of course, the party was totally defeated. Not even Mussolini was elected to parliament and he, he was at the top of the electoral list. Uh, and at that point, Mussolini, who was purely an opportunist, decided, well, if I can't win on the left, I better go in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So uh, at that point, the party became violent in its means of trying to obtain power and uh, changed its programs to make the industrialists happy. And Toscanini immediately withdrew from the party at that point. And by the time Mussolini came to power in 1922, uh, at the, in October 22, Toscanini uh, told a friend, if I were capable of killing a man, I would kill Mussolini. I, I was going to I was going to ask you about that quote as well. So let's go back just a little bit. I, I mean, as you said, in, in 1919, Toscanini was in his 50s. Uh, he was born in Parma in 1867. Um, give us a little t history about his uh, starting off with his music education. Okay, well, Toscanini uh, was born into what would have been called the artisan class. Uh, his father was a tailor. His grandfather had owned uh, uh, fabric mills in northern Italy and so on. But his father, after his adventures as a young man in Garibaldi's army, had little taste for work <laughs> mm -hmm. and a great taste for drink and women. And so... Uh, Toscanini grew up in a rather poor family, often had, did not have enough to eat, and he always remembered feeling hungry when he was young, when he was a child. When he was nine, his musical talent was discovered by one of his school teachers, and uh, his father managed to get him enrolled at the Parma Conservatory, which was a very well-known music school at the time. Um, also, uh, it was a great relief for the family because anyone who was admitted to the school as a resident, you know, boarding student, uh, the expenses were paid for by the crown. So uh, it was one less mouth to feed in the Toscanini family. Um, and he, he, his, his talents, his extraordinary talents were discovered very early on. He had a photographic memory, for instance. He had an incredible ear for intonation, for all the musical elements, balance, and so on. And he studied the cello, he studied composition, he learned to play the piano, he learned the techniques of the other instruments. Now, in those days, there was no such thing as studying conducting. Uh, if you became a thorough musician and you wanted to conduct and you were lucky you could become a conductor. But um, he studied all the elements that went into becoming a complete musician. And uh, when he was 18, he graduated from the conservatory with highest honors. The following year, he was playing uh, principal cello and working also as assistant chorus master with a 
troupe, an Italian opera troupe that was uh, performing in South America, in Brazil. And the conductor of the ensemble quit before a performance, sort of at the last minute. Uh, a series of incidents took place. Toscanini was asked if he could conduct the opera of the evening, Aida, which at that time was Verdi's most recent opera. Verdi was still very much alive and active at that time. We're talking about 1886. Um, and Toscanini... Uh, stepped onto the podium to save the evening, conducted the entire opera by heart, and at that point took over the rest of the season, conduct rehearsing, which is much harder than performing by heart, rehearsing and performing all 12 operas entirely from memory. So that was really the beginning of his career. And then he went on, on returning to Italy to work in smaller opera houses and so on until... Uh, until his career really developed. And you do write about that. You talk about his extraordinary oral memory uh, that he had uh, as a youth. Yes, he, his memory was both visual and oral, A-U-R. Uh, he, if he heard a piece, he would remember it in detail. But also if he read a score thoroughly, I mean, he had to focus on it. He couldn't just, you know sort of uh, let the notes pass by in front of his eyes. But if he focused on a page, he would memorize it. And he said late in life when he was questioned about this, also because people said, oh, well, he did it because he was, he memorized because he was nearsighted. Well, he was a little nearsighted in his youth, but not unusually so. And he memorized because it was incredibly easy for him. He could see the notes on a page and then remember them. And he even said uh, in these conversations that were taped late in life, uh, unbeknownst to him <laughs> by his son, he said, um, you know, I don't really know how I memorize. I look at something and it's in my mind. So it was quite an extraordinary talent. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Harvey Sachs, the author of Tuscanini, Musician of Consciences. And we were just talking about uh, his, we talked about his uh, politics in uh, 1919, and then we were talking about his uh, rise as a, uh, his studying as a musician before he became a conductor. But then uh, he joined La Scala. He went to La Scala. Tell us about when that happened and how he influenced La Scala. Okay, well, he had worked his way through the, some of the minor and a few of the major opera houses in Italy. And of course, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, opera was one of the main forms, if not the main form of public entertainment in Italy. Um, now, 1895, he became uh, what we would today call music director and artistic director of the Teatro Reggio in the city of Turin. And three years later, 
because he had such success there conducting, among other things, the world premiere of La Boheme and the first Italian pr production of uh, Wagner's Götterdämmerung, um, in 1898, he was called to La Scala in Milan, which, of course, is Italy's most famous uh, opera house, opera company. And it's interesting because every time he took over, from the age of 28 in Turin to... Uh, practically the end of his life, every time he took over a new organization, the whole system was changed. So in 1898 at La Scala, uh, the impresario system that had been that had functioned until then was was abolished because it had become increasingly uh, unsuccessful in favor of a managerial system. And Toscanini had, among other things, he insisted on having an orchestra that had a renewable contract from season to season instead of, you know, gathering musicians anew each year and hoping for the best. Uh, he insisted on a complete ensemble. In other words, not just vocal display for the singers, but singers, orchestra, chorus, sets, staging, lighting, everything had to function uh, for the benefit of whatever work it was that was being performed. So it had to be theater and not just musical display. Um, this was very important to him. He had, you know, today almost every theater in the world, opera theater, and at any, in any case has one of these large laterally opening curtains in front. Well, until Toscanini went to La Scala, they had a, an old-fashioned painted front drop with pictures of gods and goddesses and, you know, that sort of thing, mythological scenes on it that was raised and lowered vertically um, so that you saw uh, when the curtain, when the drop came down, it cut off the singer's heads and then the rest of their, gradually the rest of their bodies. And he said, this is anti-dramatic, you know, you have to have a laterally opening curtain. Uh, he eventually had um, a, an orchestra pit installed at La Scala. There was none until 1907, uh, because uh, with the increasing importance of the orchestra in more modern uh, works, to have the orchestra playing at ground floor, main floor level meant that they had to cut their volume way down in order not to drown out the singers. So, you know, everything, uh, in other words, he was not just a musician. He was a man of the theater who wanted a complete work of art uh, in the opera house and, and not simply vocal display. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, were other opera houses? Did they use the? Uh, uh, did they have orchestra pits, or, or was and, and or like drop curtains uh, or or um, settings, or, or was La Scala the only one who had that? It was gradually becoming more common practice. Uh, Wagner, when he had the Bayreuth Festival Theater built in the early eighteen seventies, it opened in eighteen seventy six. He had an, uh, an orchestra pit built for the theater. And uh, there had been some older theaters as well that had orchestra pits, but not many in, 
in the traditional theaters. Uh, Toscanini had had one installed in 1895 in Turin, and then he had to fight very hard at La Scala because there were a lot of people who, you know, people who don't want to change anything ever. And uh, it took a lot of uh, um, determination for him to push through that and many other reforms. He also was against the idea, and in this, I have to say, many singers agreed with him. It used to be a tradition, if a singer sang an aria and the public liked it, they would have the singer repeat it, which was anti-dramatic. The singers liked being applauded and being asked to repeat the thing, but they didn't like the wear and tear on their voices. And so for both practical and dramatic reasons, he was gradually able to force through this no-encore rule that today is standard practice uh, in most opera houses throughout the world. So it seems like he was innovating wherever he went, including when he moved to New York City and uh, joined uh, uh, the Metropolitan Opera. That's right. He came to New York in 1908. He had, by then, I guess he felt he had done what he could at La Scala. Uh, also, he was offered a, an incomparable salary. You know, this was at the time when, you know, J.P. Morgan was one of the board members of the Met and so on. And so um, the, the dollar was all powerful. He was offered a salary that was six or seven times what he could have had in Milan. He had the greatest singers in the world at his disposal because, of course, they too were happy to come to the Met for the uh, fees that they were able to command. You know, Caruso in those days would earn the equivalent in today's terms of fifty or $60,000 for a single performance. Wow. So... Um, you know, it was uh, it was El Dorado in a way, but also because Toscanini was very much respected by then internationally, they were keen to give him the to cooperate with him in the best way possible. And also, he had here during his first season and a half, basically, as co-conductor, no, no other than uh, none other than Gustav Mahler, the who today is known, of course, above all as a composer, but in his day was much more famous as a great conductor. One of my favorite uh, recordings, and this is one he did with, I believe, the NBC Orchestra. It was a, a multi-record album that I have of him conducting La Boheme. And when I first listened to it years and years ago, I heard... What I, I couldn't tell what it was at first. It was it was something that was uh, uh, going along with the music, and I realized that he was humming with the with the uh, with the music. Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of the old time conductors who grew up before there were recordings, they would uh, not really sing. They would mouth the words at the singers to help them remember the words, and they would sort of in a way, groan along, hum along, sing along underneath because, you know, the audience couldn't hear it. From, you know, they're, they're facing away from the audience. But, of course, the microphone picked that up. Um, the Bohem recording is particularly fascinating because 
Tusk, it was made on the 50th anniversary of the world premiere of La Boheme, which Toscanini had conducted 50 years earlier. So this recording in 1946, and of course we know that Puccini was a great admirer of Toscanini's work, although they, they used to fight over many things like, like two brothers. Um, uh, we have really as authentic a bohème as, as you can find in this recording. You know, this is your, I, I, I want to say, I could be wrong, your fourth book on Toscanini that you've, you've written. Um, and, and it appears that with this volume, there was a, a trove of newly available material, including, I don't know, maybe 1,500 letters. What was this material? Where was it kept? And why was it only recently made available? Well, uh, here's the story. Um, when I did my first biography of Toscanini, which was published in 1978, I had the advantage at that time of being able to talk to a lot of people who had worked with him, to his children, to other family members, to close friends who were still alive, and so on. Um, they're all gone now at this point. The only person left who knew him well is his granddaughter. Um, but what was not available at that time was this huge... Uh, quantity of documents. The family's archives uh, at that time were uh, packed up in the basement of the library uh, for the performing arts at Lincoln Center, the New York Public Library. And they were out of bounds. There had been no agreement with the family as to what to do with all this material. That in the late 80s gradually and through the 90s became available. I discovered, in part, and others discovered, huge troves of letters that Toscanini had written. And this material was very important because he never or very rarely granted formal interviews. I mean, you could count on your fingers the number of interviews he granted in his whole, whole almost 70-year-long career. Um, and he never wrote about himself for publication. So the existence of these private letters uh, allowed us to find out a great deal about who he was as a person. And then I had known for many years that these tapes existed. That there were about 100 tapes of conversations that his son had recorded without telling his father that he was recording them in the last years of the maestro's life. Um, Friends and family would come over for dinner. Walter Toscanini would push a button on the tape recorder and there was a microphone hanging from a, <laughs> a lamp stem. And, uh, and that was that. Now, these tapes were under, they were being kept under the bed of Toscanini's grandson in New Rochelle. They were there for many years. In 2007, we had them transferred to... Um, uh, wave files on on uh, DVDs or discs rather, and uh, so this material suddenly became available. Uh, Valfredo Toscanini, the grandson, kept a copy for himself and gave a copy to me, and um, so all of these conversations 
which revealed many, many, I would say, thousands of details about Toscanini's life, about people he worked with, about his attitudes toward many, many things. Uh, all of this was now available. And it was my partner, Eve Wolf, pianist, uh, and Valfredo Toscanini himself, the grandson, who unfortunately died in uh, 2011, um, the two of them really said to me, look, nobody can do this but you. You've got to do a new biography of him, start from scratch, and make use of all of this material. The other two books that I've done on him over the years, there was a collection of essays that I put together about a dozen years after the biography uh, the, the early biography came out that made use of some of the new discoveries. And then uh, in 2002, I published a collection of some of the letters uh, of Toscanini to other people, many of them to uh, lady friends of his. Well, this is, I, I mean, really fascinating. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, and um, it, it looks like, it seems like a great read. I mean, we uh, gave you a review, uh, a star, and um, uh, I wish you uh, all kinds of success with it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We've been talking with Harvey Sachs. You can find his new book, Tuscanini, Musician of Conscience, in stores right now. Harvey, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Director of Digital Operations Craig Teicher talks about the fall's big poetry titles. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Rose Fox is away this week. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, poet and PW Director of Digital Operations, Craig Teicher, is here to tell us about uh, this fall's big poetry titles. Hello, Craig. Hello, Mark. So, this is uh, looks like another uh, big season for uh, poetry. What, what do we got to look forward to? Well, the big, big thing is a two-volume complete poems from A.R. Ammons. Uh, that Norton's doing at the end of October. Um, and Emmons was uh, just really one of the major poets of the last quarter of the 20th century. And he died, I believe, in the, I want to say in the 90s. Um, and so it's taken a really long time. He was also very uh, prolific. So it's, I mean, it's about 2,000 pages of poetry. Uh, it's taken a really long time to pull together the complete works. Uh, so that's the big, the biggest thing that I'm most excited about. Now, this is, is this all uh, previously collected poems or are there uh, new ones? Well, it's, it's both. It's, um, you know, all of the poems from his published books. It's, you know, things they found in his underwear drawer. It's things they, uh, found, you know, in, um, I mean, things that were in magazines that weren't published or, or that weren't put in books. And, uh, he actually, you know, he was so prolific that there is a lot of that kind of work and when did he live when was he writing between the 60s and the and the 90s uh what what else do we have on the list so the other book that i'm really excited about is called don't call us dead by uh dennis smith and it's coming from gray wolf in september um and it's smith's second book uh he well uh 
I believe Smith goes by uh, by the pronoun they. Smith has uh, a lot of things about Smith, but he's a he's a, or they're a really outspoken writer about just um, race uh, and um, especially about uh, police violence against young black men. And also, they're just a really imaginative, smart poet. Uh, really, really just sort of formally agile. Uh, the poems are all really interesting. Um, and Smith has been... Smith is sort of unusual uh, in that um, some of the poems were first published on BuzzFeed and actually kind of garnered wide attention. So... Um, you know, sort of unusual for a poet. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a really exciting book. There's a debut by a poet named Nicole Seeley uh, called Ordinary Beast, and it's probably one of the first debuts that Echo has done in a really, really long time. Um, Echo tends to, you know, mostly take on more experienced poets. Um, and Seeley is the executive director of Cave Canem, which is one of the uh, it's it's a big advocacy organization for African-American writers, and they have a summer writing uh, colony and fellowships. But Celia is just a wonderful, also just a wonderful poet. Tell us a little bit about Nicole Seeley's poetry. What is it like? I mean, have you read it, been able to read it? The poem that I know best is about, um, I think it's called Virginia is for Lovers, and it's a poem about somebody telling their friend, that they received a positive HIV diagnosis after the person who gave it to them uh, mm -hmm. broke up with them. And it's this very surprising and surprisingly constructed poem that kind of turns on a pun almost. Um, so she's, she's, she's clever in that way, uh, you know, very sort of agile with, um, you know, the sort of details of, of the language that she uses, but also... Um, I, you know, she's, uh, um, it's sort of a, sort of an intimate, uh, poet. Um, and, um, you know, the, the poems feel very close to the reader. And when you were talking about Denez Smith, if I pronounced, uh, their name correctly, you were, you were talking about how, uh, the poet talks about, uh, I think there was something about white supremacy, race. And there also seems to be another one, uh, Javier Zamora, who talks about uh, the realities of borders and uh, maybe immigration. So it seems to be a, a lot of poets, uh, with, at least in this selection, are um, kind of talking about what's going on uh, in society right now. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, Javier uh, Zamora's book, yeah, is, is um, you know... Uh, very prescient um i mean you know i think poetry mirrors other segments of the publishing business uh this is what this is what needs to be written about right now yeah. um and and this is what's happening um you know i mean we in our poetry feature and the poetry feature i did for us a few months ago i mean that's that's what it was all about just the ways that basically the politics of the last several years have um affected what what books people are writing and what books people are publishing uh i mean i talked about dennis smith in that piece i actually talked about javier uh, zamora as well um yeah i think it's it's you know i i mean look obviously uh poetry is 
um, at, at its base all about free speech um, and, you know, speech uh, that tells the truth. And this is a this is a complicated time for free speech in America. Um, and there's a there's a lot to tell the truth about. And just moving a little bit, I see a poem or a book of poetry here while standing in line for death by is it ca conrad yeah ca conrad um yeah though it, conrad is one of those poets that uh, has his own way of punctuating <laughs> um so it's always written just capital c capital a capital c on red what are you looking forward to this year personally the 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 ammons is 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 as i said just a really big deal for me his one of his early books was a really important book just for me as a, as a poet. And so um, just having all of that in two very big volumes is going to be kind of exciting. I'll probably just sit with it in my little office for, <laughs> for a while and stare at it. Oh, well, it sounds like a, a great, great way to spend time then. Yes, just staring at books is a good way. <laughs> or, or, or the poems within the books, too, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I never read him, you know. <laughs> well, Craig, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, sure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Uh, subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episodes, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 